Hey, it's Mark Shifley here. You're listening to the Jet Centric Podcast. Hey there, Jets fans. Welcome back to episode 59 of the Jet Centric Podcast. My name is Paul Maurice, and I'm your host. Nope. I'm not. Anyhow, it's AJ, and uh, this episode is just myself and Murat having a chat. Murat from The Athletic, Murat Atesh, I'm sure you know who he is. If not, we'll learn a little bit about him and some of his Jets opinions. So um, We both like to ramble, and we could have gone on and on and on about so many more topics. Uh, tried to get to a lot of people's questions. Uh, was going to do this with a combined episode with some other interviews that uh, are done and ready to put out and some other ones that are coming up but uh, decided to just put it out by itself so uh, there's more stuff coming I talked with uh, Jake Heisinger today uh, about doing an interview this week and then also uh, about the Winnipeg Ice and also Max Giese who's a Jet Scout and interviewing on Friday so we'll be adding adding that to the mix too and also we have a Bartley Kivis interview talking about True North and their business dealings uh, that's ready to go but we'll probably combine it with one of those other ones and kind of spread out the content a little bit more over the summer instead of smashing all together like I wanted to do. Anyhow let's get to it hopefully you enjoy this episode of us chatting a little bit about uh, everything. Here she goes. Murat, first thing I wanted to get to was I wanted to ask you, or why well, I, I kind of did already, but maybe you could tell us a little bit about your very first uh, draft experience. What was that like? Who did you connect with? And, uh, you know, what did you, you take away from that experience going to the draft? I have to be honest, it was a little bit overwhelming and emotional in a really excellent way. Um, I don't know if you would have seen the post that I, I wrote and sort of shared around Twitter. It went around for a little while, but the biggest and most meaningful impact that had happened was on the Wednesday before the draft. Um, we had about 65 the athletic NHL staff in the same room, so I got to hear Craig Custins talk about developing sources. I got to hear Dom Luce-Chishin, whose name I now know how to pronounce, uh, talk about all those charts that he makes. Uh, Ryan Clark, Sarah Sivian, talk about you know kind of owning it in their first year on the beat and how well things went for them, what it was like in crazy Carolina and Colorado as well. Um, and so it was basically just me stuck in a room looking around at people that I admire and who kill it. And I got to see what I do well compared to them, what they do well compared to me. I can analyze myself and say, here's some areas I need to grow in. Um, and to find out that all of the people that I admire were such decent human beings to me in like in our one-on-one chats was, was pretty, was pretty wild. And the one thing I'll, give as an example of that was at the Jason Boschberg tribute on Thursday night. Uh, we had a dinner section separated uh, at the back of the event space for the athletic staff. And at one point I quartered James Myrtle and I, I was just talking to him a little bit, you know, uh, let's catch up, you know, since the last time we talked, what have I done well? What can, you know, what uh, can I improve upon? And uh, he engaged me in a solid in-depth chat focused on me and then they announced his name on the stage, and he literally said, oh, that's me, got to run down the stairs. And he had given me basically his prep time for uh, for going up and doing a panel. Um, and I just felt those those sorts of things mean a lot to me. Human connections mean a lot to me. Uh, and to be able to have those, I, I came back feeling really fired up. Well, that's awesome. Uh, you also uh, met Garrett while you are out there, Garrett Hole, right? And uh, he's a long-time 
uh, Jets fan or <laughs> contributor commenter? Uh, what was that? <laughs> yeah. What was that like when uh, you guys got together and uh, picked each other's brains a little bit about things Jets specific? I guess. Oh, it was it was great. We were messaging back and forth uh, during the draft on day two, um, during rounds two to seven, and we we got a chance to sort of share some thoughts. And then we sort of arranged to meet on the concourse outside of the draft floor, uh, which was really good. And I had so many questions for him. I just wanted to get to know him a little bit. But the guy was actually a bit of a celebrity, or not even a little bit of a celebrity. We hardly could get a few sentences in a row together before people stopped him, like, hey, Garrett Hole, oh my God, that's Garrett Hole. Um, and so we actually scheduled a separate event a couple of days later. He and I went out for a beer and finally had a, a good, long, detailed chat. Um, the one... Two things I'll say. One is we got along really well. I, I love the guy as a human being after meeting him and spending some time with him. And then the other thing is there's a certain level of expertise that you have to have to be able to explain really complex things uh, in clear and concise ways that people can relate to. And to hear him talk about our APM models, war models, all that sort of stuff in accessible language, it just conveyed a lot of know-how and a lot of intelligence on his side. It was a great time. One of my favorite meets for sure. That's awesome. Well, really cool to hear you share about it because uh, a lot of people are really psyched to have the, the draft in Winnipeg. So um, I know there's a lot of people looking forward to going and a bunch of people that have gone and always hear that's a great thing. Obviously, your experience as a media person is a little bit different than ours. But uh, yeah, that's great. Well, that's uh, fun to hear. So let's get into talking a little bit about the Jets and what they've done this offseason. Uh, first of all, I guess talking about who they actually drafted would be something that we're talking about the draft right now um what's your your takeaway from some of the players that they they drafted i know you've obviously written about it but uh maybe you could put some audio thoughts into um yeah some of the players that they got and who you really like and who you're looking forward to seeing a bit more of for sure the first thing i'll say is really hanola uh, winnipeg's first round pick uh on friday night there is a little bit taller than the 511 he's listed at. I'm six foot flat, and I'm going to say he has an inch on me right now, or maybe he's close to my height. Uh, so that's kind of an encouraging sign. I spent basically all of the Sunday after the draft watching video after video and, and getting like full shifts and not just highlights of, of his clips. And he's exactly as advertised. He's so smart. He's so patient. He's one of those guys that can make the smart play, anticipate a play before uh, before the puck changes directions. He's already sort of moved to where the puck's going. Uh, he'll pick it up off the wall and buy time and wait just that extra half beat that other players don't seem to have, give it to his partner in safety or move it up the ice into a safe play. Um, I think all of those nice things that you would have read about him in a scouting report are true. And then the same thought that, you know, it's going to be a bit of an adaptation or a little bit of a growth spurt for him in terms of uh, learning how to handle the physicality of the NHL game. I'm sure that's going to be a thing as well. He's off to Finland again for another year, I'm sure, uh, at least. Uh, and he admires Miro Heiskanen, who did the exact same thing and, and thought that that was a big part of his success, too. I, I got that out of him in, in a one-on-one -on -one conversation we had. Uh, a real good kid. I was, a really, I was really impressed by him uh, as a person and with his family as well. Um, okay, I, I want to ask you something about the, the Finland connection with uh, Hainola, or however you say his name. Uh, do you think that's, uh, uh, before we get into the other guys, do you think that's like really intentional that the Jets are trying to get Finnish players and, and pick up uh, players from there? Like specifically trying to get Finnish players? Do they just really trust their, their, their scouts over there in Europe? Or is that just, you know, kind of a little closer to random, the fact that we keep getting all these Finnish players, quality players too? You know what? There are so many different possibilities to that. Uh, I mean, I asked Kevin Shevelday off that question. I asked Mark Hillier that question as well. Uh, you know what? Is, is there something to this? 
the thing about draft picks is that there are so few of them in a year, even over Winnipeg's, uh, I guess, drafting career since returning to, to the city. Um, there's such a small number of draft picks total that, you know, one or two extra in, in any one direction could skew the whole thing, and it could absolutely be random. Uh, both Sheveldayoff and Hillier insisted that they don't check passports, that it's not about where players come from, it's just who they have on their board. And I believe it because I don't think that Halo was a reach. As a matter of fact, some of the models, I, uh, I think of Dom from Corsica, or pardon me, Manny from Corsica, uh, his model had him as one of the best steals of the first round in terms of the offense that he was able to put up in SM Liga. Um, so I don't think they're reaching Henry Nikonen as well in, in terms of somebody who fell but was a, originally a first-round talent in terms of projection before his injury. So you could sort of see it as uh, a nice thing that they like, or maybe they trust that scout, or maybe it's a coincidence or whatever it is. It's it's a nice thought, and it's a nice thread. And then there's one other thing that i got to say about that, is that Prashant Ier, uh, uh contributor to the Athletic out of Detroit, has done some deep-diving analytical research into the draft and draft-eligible players, and he thinks that Finland and Sweden specifically are actually under-tapped right now, that there's a little bit of a professional opportunity for teams that want to dig deeper into those two leagues, so or those two countries, and multiple leagues within them as well. So Winnipeg may have something going for it, whether it's coincidence or whether they found kind of a, a market exploitation for themselves. Uh, I like it. It's fun for me. I'll tell you that. <laughs> yeah, you even got to go last year, right? Uh, did, and did sorry, actually, when you went to um, for the Global Series, did you meet Hainola? What was the connection there again? Or you met some of the some Finnish players Yona, or that? Are, oh, Loto. That's right. That's what it was. Uh, yeah. or he who, played yeah. for Tapara. He's one year older than Patrick Laine is, and um, since he had known Laine since Luoto was thirteen and Laine was twelve, I mean, they went for bike rides, they played video games, they played street hockey and floorball and all this sort of stuff together. Um, it was a really good get in terms of contributing a, a unique side of Patrick Lining for the feature that I would have written at The Athletic at that time, including lining on crutches, working on his shot, um, going to target practice with the kids uh, that they were growing up with at that point as, a, as one of the reasons why Lining shoots so well. And then by coincidence, Winnipeg signs him in the offseason. I asked Chevy about that. And Chevrolet Hotel told me that they actually didn't know that that connection and that somebody forwarded him my article afterwards as kind of like, a, hey, look, look at this nice coincidence. And I don't know if he was just putting that on for me, but uh, but it's a fun fun angle. And, and they do seem to all know each other. Even at development camp, they're hanging out uh, by a march. So if he knew Liney when Liney was 12, does that mean he probably used to take shots on Liney when he was still a goalie? That's probably what that means, right? at all, yeah, because Lanny liked to play goalie. Uh, even after he stopped playing goalie on the ice, he played it during street hockey and other contexts like that, too, so I wouldn't be surprised at all. <laughs> okay. Um, all right, so on to a couple of the other uh, picks. We had Simon Lundmark, you mentioned uh, Nikonen, and then Blaisdell, who I believe is uh, committed to UND, and then Logan Neaton, the goalie. I mean, as we go down, it's, it's less and less interesting names. We're talking about maybe some future NHLers there, but is there anything out of those other four guys that um, kind of stood out to you, maybe watching them in dev camp, which is the next thing I was going to ask you about, was your your developmental camp uh, experience and, and, and what you maybe noticed there. Maybe you can kind of transition into that a little bit. Sure. Well, we got four out of five of them at dev camp, which was not bad, and got to see Hanola do exactly what we expected. Um, the thing about development camp for me is, I mean, talking to some of these guys, they're flying into Winnipeg and arriving, you know, gathering their bags up in the middle of the night on Saturday or Sunday night, heading into development camp. So it's tough for me to, to look at it and, and say that I, I get a clean read on, on anybody or how they relate. And 
Um, there's an article from Justin Bourne that really resonated with me where he watched Mitch Marner at a development camp and didn't think that he was nearly as good as he was supposed to be, and then he went and tore it up in his rookie season. So I am a little hesitant to give you too much in terms of hot takes, but I think that the players were largely as advertised. Um, Harrison Blaisdell continues to be hilarious with media. Mikhail Birdian had a great media session as well, and I think those are some of the, the fun interactions. I was able to get um, Hanela and Nikanen and Vertanen and Loloto kind of all in the same sort of scrum talking about just the craziness of Finland and um, their version of baseball, Petsapalo and all that sort of stuff. So that, that's sort of the fun stuff for me that I got out of it, i got to be honest. Um, and then on the ice, I really think that Winnipeg's strength is on defense right now. Um, even without um, everybody in attendance there. Sandberg grew. He's a, he's a strong player at this point. Um, Hanel is going to be a good player as well. And I, I think that the sheer volume uh, of, of players that they've picked over the last few years are sort of coming to fruition there. On forward, it was basically just a battle of who had played against men before. I thought the Yonaluoto looked really well, um, and then uh, Chibisov looked really well as well. And I'm not sure... The CJCs as well is worth a, worth a shout-out. And I, I'm not, not sure that that means that they're necessarily a step ahead so much as they've got the experience and they're just taking sharper routes and they've got a little bit more physicality to their game. Um, but my favorite part of it all, i got to tell you, was uh, just interacting with fans. I mean, I just sat like a like a hoser in the, in the bleachers and just shot the shit, if I can say that on your show. Um, <laughs> yes, you could definitely say great. that. it was great. It was absolutely great. I was hoping you were going to say the highlight was when I showed up with uh, about three minutes left, and then they everyone left the ice, and uh, that was it. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Maybe if you'd had a few more minutes and uh, you know showed up on time, uh, it would have been different. But no, it, uh, it was actually great because I didn't have to talk to you until just I can't be mean to you. You're great. Pardon me. <laughs> no, no, it's it's all good. Um, uh, we have some fun. Anyhow, okay, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but I want to move on to the Jets' uh, signings. They had a couple signings. Uh, none of them really moved the, the needle for me as far as the... Well, now I'm trying to remember who they all were. There's a couple defensemen. I should have this in front of me, but I have more of my notes to ask you about Jets' signings. But, um, yeah, what, what do you think of the Jets' signings so far? Do you think that they're done? Uh, that's a typical question. And there's uh, asked some people to submit some questions, and some were kind of along those lines. So... Uh, what do you think of their, their signings, and are they done? I don't think they're done because both of their signings today, to me, strike me as a little bit of a tweener situation. Players who've played at least at some point in the last couple of years in the AHL and, uh, and you know, whatever their abilities and strengths are at the NHL level, I think they're more uh, fringe players, maybe press box or, or depth or injury call-up, um, or AHL, and even their contract being two-way, in both cases identical, $700,000 in the NHL or 350k in the AHL deals. I mean, they're built to be flexible. Those are maybe rich for AHL deals, but they're two-way contracts, and I think that the Jets will use that. I don't think that they're done building, and they they still maintain a tiny little bit of space. I'm fairly confident at this point that they have an offer into Ben Sherrod that is being mulled over, and it's just really about whether Sherrod can get better than that on the open market. And right. I think that's a smart play on Winnipeg's part, not to continue to go back and forth and accelerate that, because uh, Ben Sherrod can't carry a pair on his own in the top four as of this point in his career, and I don't think he's going to get to that. So setting a firm price for that and just seeing what happens, I think is a solid play. Kind of like what they did with Nathan Beaulieu, who I think is a tremendous value at a million dollars. Not a lot of special teams from him, but I thought he gave enough at 5-on-5 to be worth being an actual bottom-pairing defender on the Winnipeg Jets. And there's just so many holes or so many opportunities, let's say, for the youth or or however, whatever perspective you want to take into it. Um, Winnipeg's 
defense is a fairly sizable step back next season. And um, I don't think they're done because I think they need at least one more NHL body, NHL for certain, no tweener, no asterisk body before they're content there. Right. And uh, maybe kind of, talk, you mentioned Ben Schrott there. Do you think, because uh, a lot of people have talked about a Kulikov buyout, and I know that you've written a little bit about uh, that there might be a second window to buy him out, seeing the Jets didn't do it yet. Um, I don't think they did last year just because they were sort of pot committed. Now with only a year left, it wouldn't be that big of a hit, and they weren't obviously able to move him with the Truba trade. Um, do you think that that is sort of hinging on the Sherratt uh, signing if Sherratt signs, then they probably buy out Kulikov if if possible. If he doesn't, then they'll keep him for the year. Uh, do you get a sense of that at all? Because I know people have asked about uh, Kulikov buyout a lot. For sure, it's, it's a question I posed to Shell Day up directly, and just no preamble. Are you going to buy him out? He's an NHL player, but he's expensive, and uh, I didn't get a firm no. Uh, Shell Day up sort of as he does gave you know his thoughts on the issue without committing yay or nay. Uh, I think that they're still pondering it. And the way that that would have to work is at least one player, so that's Cobb or Pionk, would have to elect for salary arbitration uh, before this Friday's deadline. If they do, Winnipeg will have a second window for buyout, um, a second buyout window open up following, I think it's a couple of days after uh, their last arbitration award. And there's a qualifier on that. The player that they buy out has to make at least $3.5 million or so. Uh, Dmitry Kulikov qualifies for that. So they're going to get a second look later in July or early in August, depending on when arbitration is scheduled, assuming one of those two players elects for it. And I think that what that does for Winnipeg is it buys them time, whether it's Sherratt, whether it's finding out what the exact RFA price is going to be on Line A and Connor and, and uh, Pionk and Kopp or whichever one of them doesn't go to arbitration if that does happen. Um, I think it's just buying time. And I genuinely do believe that Winnipeg would consider that buyout depending on what they're looking at cap-wise and player-wise, including Sherrod then. So the fact that it wasn't a firm no makes me think they're still considering it. Right. Well, okay, I'm going to move uh, move along here to uh, Appleton and Veselainen. Um, what do you think their role is uh, going to be next year now with the, the removal or <laughs> the... I'm not sure what the right word is, but Tanev being gone, right, and him playing such a, a prominent role on that third line, it seemed, um, it seems like there's going to be a spot for Appleton full-time and probably Veselainen. I mean, there's no Hendricks either. I'm trying to remember all the bodies out the door. Again, I wrote down questions, not exact players. But um, do, you, do you think those guys make uh, make the club out of camp and, and have a significant role with the team? I think they absolutely have to. There's, there's no way around it with the cap situation and the depth that, that Winnipeg has right now. Uh, both of these players have acquitted themselves well in professional leagues. That's why, despite his hop around the globe last year, remains a promising prospect who has played against men and done well in multiple leagues. And Mason Appleton uh, acquitted himself well in sort of a fourth-line role for the Jets last year as well. It's, it's time in both of their cases. And how they actually get used is very, very much up to sort of the coaching philosophy that we entered 2019-2020 with. Because um, as we know, for the last longest time, I... Whenever you ask me what my ideal line combinations are, I assume that Shifley and Wheeler play together. There's other roster rules. Boo. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. <laughs> there's other roster rules that you just follow because Winnipeg sort of committed to, to lumping its top six players together as much as possible. Yeah. And as we know, because uh, hockey is a strong link game, and there, there's sort of analytical evidence that suggests mixing your talent around. And I think that the entire second half of last season is maybe good evidence to mix talent around as well. Um, there is the possibility for a philosophy that you see those players split. Maybe you give little to Wheeler, or maybe you give Line A to Shifley, or maybe 
there are combinations where young skilled players like a Christian Veselainen don't have to be stable to the fourth line press box situation. Uh, and Mason Appleton could be for a roughly, um, what is it, a fifth of the price, the same impact on a cop Lowry line as, as Brandon Tanev had. Or, uh, or used elsewhere. I think he's responsible enough and smart enough, but not necessarily a dominant player, but one capable of doing the job and, and joining a line that's already carrying play. Um, so they have options. And I think that it really behooves Paul Maurice and his coaching staff to figure out how to integrate not just them, because they're not the, the cogs on which the, the team season turns, but all of Winnipeg's depth, sort of in a, in a more blended fashion, dare I say, uh, to try to get a little bit more out of it than what they got towards the end of last season. Well, I'm, you know me in predictions. I'm going to predict that Veselina wears number 13, which is unrelated to anything you just said, but I want it in recording just so we know. And it's funny that you mentioned the Little and, and Wheeler kind of combination because it was a little under a year ago that we talked before the beginning of last season about the idea of putting those two back together and splitting up Shifley and Wheeler. So here we are again, one year later, having the same <laughs> similar conversation. Um do the Jets need uh, 2C? Everyone, uh, you know, keeps talking about uh, the Jets needing 2C. I think a D is their, their biggest uh, area of need, and I think you'd agree there. But, like, a legit 2C, do we have that in the organization with uh, Lowry and Kopp to play in the second, third line? Or do you think that the Jets would still like to add someone else? They've, they've tried it the last two years before the playoffs by giving up a prospect and a pick. Um to, for Hayes and Stasny to replace Brian Little. Unfortunately, that's what he's cost us. That's my thoughts. Um, but uh, do you think they're kind of done with that experiment and they're ready to give those other guys a bit more of a bigger role uh, and not have to try and replace them or Brian Little at uh, the trade deadline? Well, yeah, I think the fact that those two trades have happened at all indicates that the organization would certainly appreciate a better second-line center than what they have right now. And if Brian Little were peak Brian Little of about five, six years ago, I don't think that there would be any questions whatsoever. Those trades wouldn't happen. Those assets would still be within the organization. Um, that said, I don't think it's as, as, as much of an emergency at, at this stage. I, I really I think with the, the gap situation, what it is, and what the defense is right now as well, that there's going to be a little bit of a treading water and a little bit of a commitment to development for this uh, for this coming season, and that might involve a step back uh, for the team, especially with what's happened in the Central Division. So uh, I think what Winnipeg needs out of, out of this year is some answers to whether or not he can still be useful in um, in a second-line capacity and other combinations, because little between healers and line at this point absolutely does not work. We have multiple seasons of evidence that suggest that, and I don't think that that's going to change necessarily anytime particularly soon. But there have been moments where Little alongside Wheeler continues to work. Little Perot and Healers has worked uh, at multiple different sessions uh, for short samples of each, uh, both last season and the most recent one. And there are ways to get value out of what Winnipeg has on its forward group that I think just take different line combinations at this point. And I think a lot of the evidence points to that. I think we're ready... Uh, I, I don't think that the, the analytics are in any way vague about that. I think it, that's just simply where, where Winnipeg is at. So if that happens, Brian Little can continue to be a contributing center, and I don't think that he's past the point of usefulness. Uh, and then what do they need? It's absolutely on defense. And um, Looking at the unrestricted free agency market out there right now, other than Jake Gardner, I don't know who can be an answer, and I'm not sure Winnipeg could afford Jake Gardner. So I really think what Winnipeg's going to end up leaning on is a gamble that Neil Pionk is a much better player than we think he is, 
or that Sami Niku or Tucker Pullman can put together long, healthy seasons and major steps forward. And there's going to be some growing pains. I don't think there's an answer that comes between now and Cap. Right. That's too bad Niku uh, spent so much time in the press box last year. Maybe we'd have a better look at him by now. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's, uh, you mentioned the Central Division. I was going to ask you, just kind of in short, uh, who got better. Uh, my 15-year-old is going to probably burst through the door with a, a baby in hand right away to give to me. So we'll do a Coles Notes version uh, from here on in. But I was going to ask you first about uh, Roslevic. Um, do you think that he might be a player on the move where the Jets might use him as a piece to get some D help? Because I don't think uh, Appleton would get as much in return and Veselainen is just starting to get in there and everyone else seems like they're going to stay with the team. I know there's been rumors about Ehlers being traded, but that seems to have quieted down a little bit. Do you think that uh, Rosovic might be on the move for some D? At the very least, we've heard that Rosovic is discontent and it may be that he went as far as uh, asking for a trade from his prior agent, who has refuted that. It's just merely Roslovic's camp told the Jets that uh, that he was unhappy with his usage at times last season, given that it was fourth-line minutes, and given that with Winnipeg's depth, the fourth line hardly played. I actually empathize with Roslovic on that one quite a bit. Um, but there's something there in terms of a, a little bit of discontent. Right. I actually think that he might be a good bet for Winnipeg to trade in terms of defensemen. Uh, there's... I mean, it was a rough developmental year for him being stuck on the fourth line, and the center experiment with him didn't go particularly well. I continue to believe that there's an intelligent two-way winger there that can play in kind of a middle six role and that his offense hasn't disappeared. It's just a matter of context. However, uh, at this point, it may be that the NHL still believes that he is more than he is. And um, given that Ehlers is absolutely a value deal at $6 million in, in terms of what he was able to do on the top line, the huge swing and results that Shifley and Wheeler got with Ehlers versus Connor uh, being a massive plus players in terms of goals, um, expected goals and shot attempts versus being slightly negative uh, in those same facets with Connor. I think that Ehlers at $6 million is a deal that Winnipeg needs to hold on to. So there might be something to Roslevic uh, for a defenseman. Um, I think that the organization is pretty high on him as a player, though. I, I'm fairly confident they've been asked about him at both of the last two trade deadlines. And uh, I, I get the sense that they're, they're relatively hesitant to make that deal. Um, so as much as it makes sense, as much as you can put together a, a, a trade um, that, that seems to give two teams value in terms of Russell McFerr defenseman of some kind, I, I don't expect it. I think Winnipeg's a top-heavy team for the time being. Right. Well, if nothing else, he is probably the smoothest skater and one of the niftiest passers on the team. I'd like to see a little bit more of him because he's got some some skills that I think a lot of people haven't seen unless they watch the Moose for the last three seasons. Well, besides last season, I guess. Um, uh, in the West, uh, just talking about the teams, uh, who got better? I'd say most people would argue that the Jets did not get better. If anything, they got worse, regardless of their signings, just because of the big hole left behind by Truba. So that maybe they'll do something and they will get better on paper. Uh, so this isn't uh, the end of it all. But I'm curious, which uh, which teams in the Central do you think have actually... Uh, who's improved? That's that's a, my long version of a short For question. Sure. Yeah, I think Winnipeg losing Truba definitely hurts. Who's improved? I think the answer is almost everybody. Uh, I rate P.K. Saban still as a reasonably good defender, and uh, I thought that Nashville didn't get very much back yeah. for him, but still, they were able to add in other ways. Um, St. Louis added Gloria. Um, they might lose Pat Maroon, it seems. That seems, seems to be a conversation going along, um, which would be a sad story for them, given uh, his relationship with his son and his city, St. Louis. 
Um, but I think Chicago added, Minnesota added, though there's a little bit of chaos in Minnesota as well. So I'm not sure what's what to expect between now and the end of the off season. I, Dallas was also a big winner. I I think that where we left the standings over the course of last regular season with St. Louis, Nashville, and Winnipeg essentially tied. Um, I think that you can look at St. Louis's dominance and excellence as a sign that they're a step above Winnipeg. I think Nashville um, is a step above Winnipeg right now. I think Dallas is a is a good bet to pass. And then all of a sudden, Colorado adding depth, uh, depth players that, that could give them a second line in addition to the mckinnon uh, landis Granton situation. It's going to be a tough year in Winnipeg. I, I think, based on the comment section at The Athletic and what I read, that uh, the people are aware of that. But it's, it's going to be a much more challenging year for the city, uh, for the city's NHL team this year than than last, or definitely than the one uh, the season before it. Right. Yeah. What an amazing season that was two years ago. Why'd you have to bring that up? Um, there are a lot of <laughs> a lot of questions people submitted here. Some of them, I think, maybe I'll uh, I'll just at you on them, and uh, you can maybe answer them because uh, they might require longer longer answers, or they're certainly longer questions. Um, Not pretty bad for rants in, in terms of answers, but I'll try to bullet point it if you got to oh, fit a bunch in. No, I got, I got, I'm so bad at asking uh, long questions. Uh, Yuri says, provided the Jets' defense wasn't good last year, why does personnel matter at all? I, I think he's kind of somewhat joking, but, uh, you know, with with Truba out there, and Buff, I guess, only half a season, and Morrissey, the bit of Niku, and some other quality players that we did see. We had some some bottom-end ones. Um, I, I think maybe the question that he's trying to get a, uh, across is a little bit more about uh, strategy versus the personnel and maybe how much of a role that uh, that plays and maybe should the Jets look at uh, having a different strategy given that their their skill level right now looks like it's not going to be nearly as high as it was last year. Well, for sure. It's multifaceted for one. Um, the Buffalo and Enstrom pairing in 2017-18 was special. And even in the, the athletic season preview, I predicted a setback for the Jets, just given that alone. There is a there is an issue with that. That that pairing was particularly excellent, but it's much more the the team as a whole, even the forwards in terms of back pressure and back checking and defensive responsibility, and maybe Wheeler taking a step back, and um, the commitment to a top six, bottom six approach, and the leaning of the minutes on the first line and not the fourth, and um, this this man to man that stays man to man and like switches out of zone into man-to-man very, very early, and then the switches happen very, very late, and you have defensemen chasing people all the way up to the blue line. There's, uh, there are systemic issues, and I think that the big goal, the ideal situation in Winnipeg right now is that they take sort of a, a summit approach to their offseason in terms of their five-on-five systems, um, the same one that they took two years ago before 2017-18. So I think the league is caught up to what they've uh, what they discovered heading into 2017. Right. Um, or you got a loader in the background. Yeah, uh, I can hear. Um, the uh, Andy asks uh, Marat, given the Jets' current state of affairs, what would Marat do? Marat do if he was GM for a week. Ryan liked that and said, "What would Marat's first three moves as a GM be?" So you take the Jets over. Uh, what's your your first priorities and within uh, realistically, what's your capability? Uh, wow. Um, thanks for the responsibility. I appreciate it. I, I think that the move right now in Winnipeg is to get out of dead money. I don't see answers in the free agency market. And dead money, the closest thing that Winnipeg has to it is, is Dmitry Kulikov. And I think that that buyout 
or a trade with assets. I'm not sure because I obviously don't know the market. I don't have the access to Chevy's calls, but something in terms of that. I think Perot is still providing value in terms of possession, but his offense has sort of fallen off. His shot's a little bit of a muffin. Uh, I don't think he's dead money necessarily. A little close to it, but still providing something. I don't think that there's emergencies there, but that's something to begin to explore. That's not an answer. That's not even a move. I get it. Um, well, that, that is oh, something, gosh, though. So much, uh, these are my thought processes, and I also lean really hard on the 2020 draft in, in terms of the folks that I've talked to and scouts and scouting personnel over the last little while. I think that there's something special there. Um, so even there might be a bit of a shock and approach to mid-rounds or late-round picks, too. So, you know what? I think that this year, if Marat were the GM, would be a disappointing year of rebuild uh, or retool, as you might say, holding on to all of the young forwards, um, and all of the young prospects on D, uh, thinking that next year would be the, the time to, to go for it. Once you could be out of Kulikov money, uh, perhaps out of little money with the no move uh, turning into a no trade at that point as well. Um, yeah, I think there would be retooling going on. Right. Um, well, I guess that's kind of what we got. It's a pretty quiet quiet year mostly, right? Um, uh, Ace Burpee, I know you know, <laughs> know what he asked. He wants to know why you're so handsome. I would like to thank my mother. That is all I have to say about that. And thank you, Ace. You're wonderful. Um, yeah, hug somebody near you and say it was for me. <laughs> there we okay. go. Uh, some of these other questions, I think we kind of uh, uh, covered a lot about the D. Um, Reese says, when Bufflin, Kulikov, Morrissey get hurt, who are the Jets? Seven, eight, nine, ten guys. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, we might as well call up uh, some guys that know are longer with the organization at this point. So, um. oh, yeah, uh, Cam Schilling. Logan Stanley is going to get a solid look at camp. There's no way around that. Uh, I'm not sure that he's ready, but believe me, the organization's saying nice things about him at this point. And I think that all expectations are that, that he's going to stick around for a while or be a number one guy uh, at the AHL level. Yeah, you're, you're getting into depth. Oh, uh, that's a frightening concept, the injuries. But I was looking at it. And Winnipeg's current top six that are signed missed over 100 games last year between them. And it approaches like at least a quarter of the total available games they had to them. So mm-hmm. imagine Winnipeg's defense as you see it right now. And every three games, there's a fourth one where one of them can't play. And it's probably somebody good. That's a frightening concept. Yeah. Well, I, Buff did miss 40 alone, right? Or 40 or 42, something like that, right? Yeah, so, yeah but- most of them. Yeah, that was pretty crazy. Um, couple, uh, well, somebody wants to know who Michael. He says, uh, "Who the fuck runs the penalty kill, and when do we sink them to the bottom of the ocean? Who is responsible for the penalty kill? The penalty kill <laughs> wasn't uh, the thing that really sunk the Jets, so was it? And uh, but who ran it, and uh, what do you find the most problematic? We've talked about this actually last year. If people want to go back, I know you talked about them kind of giving up lots of shots, but hoping that the goalie gets good looks. And we talked about whether that was a system built specifically for Hellebuck because of maybe his style and maybe not being the crazy acrobat side to side. But if he can get a look, then um, he has uh, time to get over and whatnot. So um, the penalty kill. Do you have any comments on the penalty kill? Who runs it? Why it's problematic? Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm blanking and I don't want to lie to you, but I do have notes on who's responsible for what in terms of the Jets' assistant coaching staff. The one thing I will say is that one of the great things about having Matt Hendricks come back was that he was able to sort of comment on the difference between this year's penalty kill and last. And he was sitting in on all of the video for it, even though he wasn't uh, necessarily playing a whole lot. Um, and the big change was that at about December... Winnipeg realized that, hey, the strategy that they were using before and the passivity of its top two forwards was giving up 
crazy amounts of shots and the regression that we predicted that I wrote about that you and I talked about did come to fruition and that they were sort of like a mid to bottom tier penalty kill through the first half of the season. Um, and what Matt Hendricks was saying was that they gave the forwards more permission to sort of chase out a little bit um, and be more aggressive. And so there was a bit of a systemic adjustment uh, in about December of this year. I'm confident in telling you that. Uh, but I don't think that it yielded much in terms of results. I still think they're chasing around way too much or they're behind way too much is what I would say. Um, and they're giving up a lot of shots and shots with, with quality. And as soon as they started chasing, they ended up getting beat to those team passes that they used to stop. So I'm not sure what the answer is. It might be a revamp, but it might be returning kind of to what it was uh, like a little bit more than a year ago at this point. Um, I don't think it's sank the team, but I think it is an area of weakness that needs to be considered. Um, whether, whether it's continuing that flexibility, whether it's going back to that hyper-conservative approach or coming up with something new. Yeah, I'm not sure what the Jets looked like the last two years, but I know that historically they've always been one of the most penalized teams. So one way, if uh, you know you don't want to be down a man, is is to not take penalties and not have to worry about your penalty kill probably nearly as much. So, um, but I don't know were they were they highly penalized the last season or two? Uh, seventeen, eighteen, they actually did a lot better, and I I don't want to pick a group, but I think that they were at least in the bottom half of the league in in a good way in terms oh, good. of that. But I think that they took more in the most recent season. I don't know if they led the league. This is something that anyone listening, please double-check me on that and call me on my BS if I'm wrong. But this is what I seem to remember. Um, the other interesting thing about the PK is Shifley and Wheeler, because they do such a good job of it. They engage you know, the, the breakout that always leads to the drop pass in terms of a power play zone entry. Well, they engage that way sooner than anybody else does, and they attack it way sooner, and they prevent more zone entries than anybody else. So whether they're better penalty killers or not, they're stopping more zone time and they're preventing goals. But if you're playing them two minutes a game on the PK, all of a sudden their minutes are up and Wheeler's aging, and there's there's a bit of a trade-off there. So yeah. there's, there are a lot of things to consider, especially when you might have a guy like Mason Appleton or Jack Roslovic taking a step forward in those minutes this year, or Mark Letestu playing PK if he is an NHL player this year. Right. Um, Greg says Spotify or Apple Music Spotify okay perfect uh, top five coffee shops in Winnipeg maybe name three uh, if it's independently owned I've drank way, way too much coffee and written way too many words there for sure I'm staring at one of them on Sherbrooke Street right now <laughs> alright and um, let's see what was the last one here uh, no we actually kind of address it why do we play the man-to-man defense I guess you, you've already talked about how the coaches need to change that or maybe relook so, at it so. the man-to-man and zone switch sort of the deal like start in zone um, have a zone formation go to man-to-man as necessary call for help as necessary is something that's more or less used throughout the NHL but Winnipeg's commitment to the to, to man, man-to-man before like the, the speed at which they switch to it and the degree at which they commit to it is a bit extreme, I think, at this point. And I've started to dig into that by talking to folks around the NHL. Um, maybe that's teasing a coaching staff evaluation piece for the dog days of summer in, in a little while. But I'm trying to get you answers on it. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. That's good. All right. Uh, I told you I'd keep you half an hour, and we did 38 minutes. So um, not bad. <laughs> All right. Yeah, I Sorry, I ramble. Uh, you know, I like talking to you guys. So, oh yeah, don't don't try and out ramble me. This is what I'm known for, and we've <laughs> talked about it before. Um, next time, though, we'll do it together in person, and it'll sound even more natural. Um, Marat, thanks again for taking the time, and uh, have a great summer. Thank you for having me, and happy anniversary to Jet Centric. 
Oh yeah, that's right. Thank you for noticing. I'm Kurt Gilback, and thank you for listening to the Jet Centric Broadcast.